On Tuesday, millions of Americans will go to the polls to elect the 116th Congress of the United States of America. If you are like me, a resident of the city of Cleveland, you are going to be also voting on a statewide issue, constitutional amendment. You're going to be voting on adjustments to our county charter. You're going to be voting on a slate of different judge positions. You're going to be voting on representatives and senators to the state legislature, as well as to our United States Congress. I have a four-page sample ballot here of all the different races and elections that I need to vote in. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about voting is that it's a, a thing that uniquely marks us as Americans. Not every nation is a democracy. And even here, the right to vote has not always been universal. And even today, it can be taken away. It's not, as it were, unalienable. But nevertheless, it is a sacred obligation and responsibility and privilege as citizens of a democracy. Perhaps we've grown numb to it because of our low numbers of voters that we see in our various election cycles. Maybe that's a sign that we don't appreciate it the way we ought. But voting is something that uniquely marks us as Americans. And when we take the collective weight of our ballots, that final tally, it demonstrates our collective voice. It's an imperfect and frail voice, but it's our voice nonetheless. The motto of the United States is e pluribus unum. Originally, it referred to the 13 states coming together as one United States of America. But it has a broader sense to it as well, and it's particularly apt for our vote. Out of many voices comes one collective, democratic, with a small d, vote. Although many people live in America, voting is a distinct privilege only of the citizens of the United States of America who are of age to understand these things. It is a right of those who uniquely belong. In this morning's passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, we're going to take a look at a right that uniquely marks Christians as opposed to non-Christians, even non-Christians who might frequent our assemblies. And Paul's point, the big idea that I think he has, the central idea that Paul makes, is that because the Lord's Supper marks us out as one, it must be directed toward our oneness. And in unpacking this idea, we're going to see that Paul moves from a mention of the trouble taking place in Corinth to a reminder of the tradition that the Corinthians ought to know to correcting them through apostolic teaching. So we're going to look at the trouble, the tradition, and the teaching. So to start with, let's look at the trouble. In this passage, we read about the fact, excuse me, we read about 
the first in a series of problems with the Corinthians church gathering. Now, to be clear, when we speak about church this morning, we're talking about a community of people following Jesus Christ in one place. Here, in the passage, it's Corinth. And, and they are gathered, they're the people of Jesus in one place who are gathered precisely because they are the people following Jesus in that place. So they're not the church because they've come together for the sake of coffee. They're not the church because they've come together for the sake of fantasy football draft. They're the church because they have come together because they are the people of Jesus. It is the who and the why of their gathering. Now, this is something the earliest Christians did from the very first day. They met weekly, as was the pattern of their Jewish heritage, and they quickly exchanged the Jewish Shabbat, the last day of the week, for the Christian Lord's Day, the first day of the week. This was to be a time of joyous celebration. The gatherings were accompanied by praying together, singing together, reading God's Word, and learning to live by it, and generally by celebrating the Lord's Supper. If that sounds not too different from what many churches do today, well, guess what? There's a method to the madness. We are following an ancient biblical pattern. There's good evidence from early church history that the Christians often ate the Lord's Supper as part of a larger meal, the agape, or love meal. That meal is never commanded in Scripture, but it makes sense that before there was such a thing as the weekend, and Christians were probably gathering after a long day at work, they'd often be hungry. And if they needed to prepare food for the Lord's Supper anyway, well, they may as well make a full meal of it. But there's trouble. Looking at verse 17, Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now that is, of course, not something that should ever be said about the church. Coming together as a church is eminently good. In fact, for the Christian, it's one of the few things in life about which you can safely assume you're making the best use of your time. You, you know the concept of opportunity cost, right? Like when you read a book and think maybe you should be cooking dinner, or when you're responding to emails at work and you think you should really be meeting with clients, or when you're sleeping in a little later on a Saturday morning and you're thinking you should be up cleaning the kitchen. Every action comes with an opportunity cost. Choosing to do one thing means we are choosing against something else. And we often wonder if that something else would have been better for us. But for the Christian, the opportunity cost of coming together with your church is almost always insignificant. Being with the family of God is almost certain to be the best use of your time every time. So how bad must things have been for the Corinthians that Paul can say that when they come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse? What was going on? Well, Paul begins to explain. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So the initial concern is division. This isn't a new point. If you are familiar with this letter, you probably know that much of the early ink of this letter is spilt on combating divisions among the Corinthians. In the early part of the letter, divisions 
stemmed from the Corinthians having preferences on which Christian leaders they preferred to follow. One would say, I follow John Piper, and others say, I follow Francis Chan. And others, who probably thought themselves better than everyone else, would say, well, I just follow Jesus. And of course, everyone else wanted to smack that guy who was so overly spiritual. So that was a division of loyalty that was happening in the Church of Corinth, or maybe a division of personality cults, we might say. But here, there are divisions that are centered on the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And before he digs into that, Paul makes a passing remark that is really quite fascinating when you look at it. He says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul is being a little sensitive here. He's only heard reports. He's not in the gatherings with them. So he can only go by what he's heard, but he knows there must be some level of divisions because they must recognize those who are genuine. What does that mean? Well, the plain sense of it is that the Corinthians, by necessity, must make a distinction between who is real, who is a real Christian, and who is not a real Christian, who are the genuine followers of Jesus, and who are not the genuine followers of Jesus, when they take the Lord's Supper. In the ancient church, there's good evidence that the common practice was that the agape meal took place at a time separate from the other activities of what we might call a worship service. Not a radically different time, but for instance, it might be at the end. Unbelievers, those who were not followers of Jesus, could come and hear the preaching and listen to the prayers and the singing. Perhaps they even joined in for a chorus. But the Lord's Supper was a holy meal, so they would dismiss the visitors and celebrate the meal as the church. Now, in order to do that, you had to have a pretty good idea of who belonged to the church and who did not. A local church, like the early Christians of Corinth, or Gateway Church downtown, has to make a distinction between the genuine, credible believers who are part of it and those who do not quite belong. I came across a church recently that said they don't have, they don't practice formal membership. Rather, they accept as part of the church whoever accepts their church's mission and values. Now, it sounds pretty egalitarian, but my next thought was, I bet the leaders of that church keep a pretty good tab on who genuinely is on board with their missions and values. You see, because every church on some level must make this distinction or it quickly stops being a church. The church is, after all, the family of God. And the only thing that stops it from being just a random mass of people is understanding who belongs to the family and, well, who doesn't. So every church makes this distinction. At Gateway, we call those people whom we recognize as genuine members. And the reason we do that is because that's the biblical word for it. It's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. But it doesn't matter what you call it. A church has to do it. 
But then Paul is sort of wryly saying by this, whatever the exact truth, don't tell me there are no divisions. I know you have some divisions. Or perhaps he's just covering an objection from the Corinthians. Well, Paul, well, of course we have divisions. We have to keep unbelievers from the Lord's Supper, right? And Paul is setting this up as, yes, yes, you have to divide the believers from the unbelievers, but let's talk about what else is going on here. And so he writes, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I'm not an expert. And nor do I think all the details matter for us. But this passage is one in which modern archaeology has significantly helped us understand what must have been going on here, or certainly the options of what, what were going on here. We know from Scripture itself that early Christians often met in houses. There were not a lot of options for a gathering, really, even though most Christian churches outside early Jerusalem were probably pretty small. And you can imagine that a typical house still needed to be pretty good-sized to hold a Christian congregation, and those were probably often held by some of the richer or more well-to-do members. So here's where the archaeology comes in. A few decades ago, a home was unearthed in Corinth so that we have a very good idea of what one of these meals might have looked like. See, the dining room, there was a separate dining room that featured a three-sided dining couch where the owner of the house and his most privileged guests would take up their meal. It was common to entertain and invite a large crowd to a meal in ancient Corinth. But the less dignified guests would crowd, probably standing in the atrium. It was typical in a Corinthian meal like this for the distinguished guests to get the first and best of the food and drink, and the rest, those who were lucky to have been invited at all, got the leftovers. It's not hard to imagine that the Corinthian Christians adopted their cultural practice for the, for the agape meal, which included the Lord's Supper. So imagine the Lord's Supper taking place in two rooms. One room with nine to 12 VIPs, probably including the owner of the home, having a joyous meal with more than enough food and drink, such that they were overeating and getting drunk. Then in the atrium, maybe 20 to 50 people crammed together eating what had been picked over by the VIPs. Or perhaps the cook fixed up the ribeye for the VIPs and the shank for everyone else. There might even be a suggestion in here also, it's hard to know for certain, that the Christians coming to the dinner might be responsible for their own food. And if that's the case, we might be looking at a situation where the richer, better-off Christians are enjoying an abundance of rich and fancy food, steak and lobster and caviar and fine cheeses and wines, or at least the first century equivalent of those things, while the poor are bringing the most meager of rations. 
if it were a potluck, that might have all worked out. But it wasn't a potluck. Paul is horrified, as we ought to be. He says, this isn't the Lord's Supper at all. It is his own supper, his own meal. A subtle point Paul is making in verse 20. This is not the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is a meal that honors Jesus. But the way the Corinthians were celebrating it, each was honoring himself. That word supper for Lord's Supper and meal for his own meal is the same word. The upshot of this is that the Corinthians, at least those who were relatively well-to-do, were despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. Despising the church of God by the way they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Whatever our thoughts on the Corinthians' actions, can we pause for a moment and acknowledge that the Lord's Supper was not, cannot be understood as merely a little ritual, not simply a little ceremony, not as far as Paul was concerned. It seems like a large part of American Christianity falls into one of two camps. There are those who treat the Lord's Supper with an almost superstition. In fact, it's almost magic. You know, magic says if everything is done just so, according to the right pattern and the formula and the right words said at just the right time, then good things will come to the practitioner. And many churches treat the meal like magic. On the other hand, many churches treat this with a casualness that is hardly becoming of the fact that it belongs to the Lord and is for the Lord. To return to the Corinthians' trouble, they were celebrating the meal in a way that effectively segregated the church. There were those who had and those who had not. The divisions were quite literal, likely separating into different rooms, with some getting the best and some not getting the best. Now, I'll get to some specific applications for us under the third point of my sermon, and maybe a few under the second, but I don't want us to too quickly judge the Corinthians. Before we check that there's not a log in our own eye, because if the findings from archaeology lead us the right direction in understanding the situation, then we have something here that should sound very familiar. No, not dividing our church into two different rooms or more for celebrating the Lord's Supper, but that the Corinthians had adopted a normal, well-understood part of their own culture for use in the church without stopping to consider the ramifications of that, the culture celebrated these stratified and segregated dinner parties. And they likely thought very little about bringing the same thing into their new community, the church. It ought to be a reminder to us that while not everything in the world is evil, we often don't see our own cultural vices very clearly. That's why we're so quick to look back at previous generations as uncivilized brutes, and it's why our parents and grandparents can look at us with contempt as well. It's why white Americans can look at black urban Americans with disdain for all the so-called black-on-black crime and needless violence in the inner cities. And why black Americans, black 
uh, uh, Americans can look at suburban and exurban whites and shake their heads in shame every time some skinny white kid shoots up a school. It's not something that happens with much regularity in the urban or African-American context. We live such separate lives in this country. We see the others' faults clearly, but our own not so well. Christians, don't cling to your cultural preferences if they aren't Christocentric preferences. Make sure your preferences are Christocentric and not cultural, Christ-centered and not cultural, because it can be so easy to divide unnecessarily. What are some of our cultural practices? Maybe you enjoy going to brunch to spend time with your fellow Christian friends after church, but when you do that, are you leaving out someone who couldn't afford the price of that swanky restaurant or wouldn't be comfortable in that scene? Are you leaving someone out because $15 and 15 minutes away for a meal just isn't an option? When you are engaged in a social activity, are you cognizant of whom you are likely to invite and whom you are not likely to invite? Are there people that tend to show up more than other people? Is there something going on, something that you're doing naturally, without thinking, that you don't even realize you're doing, that makes it so some people feel more included and other people don't feel as included. It's not that you're necessarily deliberately trying to sabotage fellowship with those people, but you haven't stopped to recognize the gospel implications that are caught up in your cultural preferences. Our unity in Christ demands that we surrender our cultural preferences for the sake of Christian unity. Well, moving on from the trouble a bit, Paul wants to remind them of the tradition. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, by tradition, I don't mean a set of cultural norms that are passed on by habit. In the ancient Christian world, in the scriptures, tradition is often the authoritative pattern to which all Christians were to hold. It was tradition because it was passed on from one to another in a time before the written page was very common, and it was tradition because it was more than just instruction. It's a pattern, a pattern of life that's based on certain facts. And Paul appeals to that. He appeals to something that he believes the Corinthians should already know. But he feels like they need to be reminded of those basics. Paul had passed this on to them what, uh, when he had first visited Corinth, most likely. He visited Corinth to preach the gospel. 
It wasn't something that he had made up. In fact, it wasn't something that had been taught to him by another human being even. It was something that had been given to him from the Lord Jesus, which is a stunning admission. We don't have time to dig into all the ramifications of that. But the big point is that Paul is telling them in no uncertain terms that he has the authority of Jesus behind this teaching. So here's the tradition that Paul passed on, a tradition which we can read about with differing details in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. You get the idea that this is important. Paul passes on that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul reminds the Corinthians that the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified, that meal was a Passover meal. And on the afternoon before the Passover, they ate. And what was the Passover? Well, Passover was the Jewish feast that celebrated the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. You can read all about that conveniently in the book entitled Exodus. It was rich in symbolism. You see, God had brought a series of plagues on the Egyptians who had enslaved the Jews in order to break the will of the king so that he would let the Israelites go free. This culminated in the tenth plague, the plague on the firstborn. God promised to slaughter the firstborn throughout Egypt, whether of families or animals. But he would spare all those who trusted him. How was this trust or this faith in God demonstrated? Well, God told the Israelites to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorway of their houses. They were to eat the lamb, roasted with unleavened bread. The bread was unleavened because God was going to take them out of Egypt in a hurry and they needed to be ready to go. There was no time to let the yeast rise. They ate with bitter herbs because the meal was as bitter as it was sweet. When even the Egyptian king lost his own son to God's hand, he relented and drove the Israelites out of Egypt. The Jews had gone into Egypt as one extended family. They left Egypt as a new people, a nation. They were commanded to remember what God had done for them by celebrating that God made them a new people and spared them from his judgment through faithful obedience. Well, Israel was full of laws that treated the citizens the same as the immigrants and passer-throughs. The Passover was different. The Passover was only for true Israelites. If an outsider wanted to celebrate the Passover, he had to first become an insider by being circumcised as a symbol of identifying with the promises God had made to the Jewish people. It was an ongoing remembrance of what God had done to make Israel his people. There's every reason to believe the same was true of the Lord's Supper, of Jesus' Supper. He celebrated it with his disciples, not the crowds who had followed him. 
and he commanded them to repeat it in remembrance of him. Just as the blood of a lamb had sheltered the Israelites from God's judgment, so the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, shelters Christians from God's wrath and judgment. Just as the Israelites celebrated the Passover to recall God's deliverance and calling a new people to himself, so Christians recalled Jesus' deliverance and the new people, his church, that he has made his own. The idea that when Paul draws our attention to the body, we have to remember the context. He's already spoken about the body before in this letter. Think about what Paul wrote in chapter 10. He wrote, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Because we all share in the same cup and the same bread, we are made one with one another. Even as the bread represents the body of Jesus, which is also the symbol for the church. The church is the body of Christ, and the bread is the body of Christ. So when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are reflecting our unity as one people. So what can we learn about this holy tradition that has been passed on from Jesus? Let me give you six things. First, I'd argue that it is a celebration for church members, just as Gentiles and foreigners were brought into the community of faith through circumcision under the Old Covenant. So outsiders are brought into the community of faith through baptism in the New Covenant. Baptism, baptism isn't just a private celebration, but it is the initiation rite into Jesus' church. And that has been the standard Christian teaching for 2,000 years. In recent decades, we've begun separating baptism from church membership, but the New Testament just doesn't have any concept of a Christian who is not tied to a local church. It's just not a thing. A Christian was baptized into Christ. So in being joined with Christ, she was joined with Christ's body, the church. I'm not sure when we started divorcing these concepts. I'm not much of a historian. But as a general rule, if you were a German Christian in 1575, or an English Christian in 1823, or a Greek Christian in 521, you were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and you were celebrating the Lord's Supper, it was because you had been baptized into a local Christian community which recognized you as one of them. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a doctrinal stance of Gateway Church downtown. And this isn't even the pastoral position or the elders' position, though it is an issue the elders have been discussing. But this is my conviction from studying the Scriptures. And to the extent that I'm following the Scriptures, I commend this view to you as well. Read the Scriptures on this. Look at history. Does it make any sense that a person who is not a baptized member of a local assembly and not recognized thus as a genuine Christian would be welcomed at the Lord's Supper. Now, does this mean that only the members, however we understand that, at the Corinthian church, for instance, could eat the meal? No, I don't 
think so. I think they would have welcomed anyone they recognized as having been baptized into such an assembly at the table. I assume Paul, who was most accurately a missionary member of the church in Antioch, ate the Lord's Supper when he was in Corinth. But the Corinthians would have recognized him as a baptized member of Christ's church. So I think it is similarly appropriate that the members of other local assemblies who are passing through or have recently moved ought to be welcomed with open arms at the Lord's Supper that we celebrate here at Gateway or another local church. Now, our official position at Gateway, for now at least, is that all who are true followers of Jesus are welcome. Where I would personally push back, and where, again, I think Scripture pushes back, is that there's just no such thing as a true follower of Jesus who isn't recognized as such by a local Christian assembly. And if no local Christian assembly recognizes your conversion as genuine and so welcomed you into membership, however they understand it, whether they use that word or not, I don't know that you should have a lot of confidence in your conversion. Now, second thing that we can learn from what Jesus passed on to us, this is a little bit more tentative, but I think it's there, is that Jesus is really present in the meal. No, I'm not teaching the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation or the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation. And if you have no idea what those things mean, don't worry about it. But when Jesus was with his disciples for that Passover meal, and his disciples heard him say, this is my body, and this cup is the blood of the new covenant, and they hear those words while Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they can physically see his body, and he's not pale like a ghost, so they know that blood is pumping through him, then they understood that he was using a symbol, that the bread wasn't synonymous with his body, and the Wine was not synonymous with his blood. That being said, as Christians, we do believe that when we are gathered as the church, Jesus is present among us by his spirit, even as we are his body. That's the metaphor. He promises us, lo, I will be with you, plural, always, even unto the end of the age. And I think that there is a way, a sense in which Jesus is uniquely present with us when we are gathered as a church, and particularly, especially, when we celebrate his supper together in a way that is unique from his everlasting presence by his Spirit. Third, more concretely, how often we celebrate the Lord's Supper is not described. 
I said that there's some evidence that they may have eaten the Lord's Supper every week early on, but that's never commanded in Scripture. There's nothing particularly sacred about doing it once a month or doing it every week. What we do have here, though, is not a command to eat the meal every time we meet, but a command that every time we eat the meal, we do it a certain way. What does seem to be commanded is that we do it regularly. The command, do this, implies ongoing, habitual behavior. So it is important, and it needs to be consistent on some level, but we don't necessarily need to follow any specific schedule. Fourth, the way we are to celebrate it is as a memorial of Christ. I prefer the term memorial to a remembering or a remembrance in many ways because it's supposed to be more than just remembering. It's more than just recounting facts of history that happened in the past in the same way that Memorial Day in the United States is more than just remembering people or dates or histories that happened. When we have Memorial Day in the United States, we don't merely remember the men and women who died in combat, but we honor them. So too, our participation in the Lord's Supper should be by way of memorial. We remember what Christ did, yes, but we also honor what Christ did. We celebrate him and salute him, as it were. We do it in honor of Jesus. Fifth, the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. In ancient Israel, a covenant was made by the spilling of blood, usually the killing of an animal. In the covenant that God makes with his new people, the church, the blood spilled was that of his own son. In a way, then, the Lord's Supper is like a covenant renewal ceremony. When we take it, we again pledge our allegiance to Christ, and he again confers the blessing of his grace upon us. And so the memorial is meaningful. Sixth. It is a proclamation of Christ's death until he comes. When we eat this meal, we are saying to each other, Christ has died. Christ has died for us. But he is returning. And this is a reminder, not only of his sacrifice, but also of the fact that he is, in fact, alive and he is coming again. So Paul reminds the Corinthians of all this in summary form because he wants to correct their missteps on the basis of these facts. So let's turn to that correction, that teaching that Paul gives in, in light of their trouble and in light of that tradition. For this, we're going to focus on, uh, we're going to look at verses 27 through 34, but we'll focus in on the first three more than any others. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
Now, I think that these verses are some of the more misinterpreted, misunderstood verses in the New Testament because they're not carefully read in the context. The way this teaching is often heard is that if we're unworthy of the Lord's Supper and we take the Lord's Supper being unworthy people, we're in big trouble. And so usually what's encouraged is that people take time to reflect on their sins, confess their sins, clear up their sins before they take the Lord's Supper so that they don't bring some sort of judgment on themselves. But Paul doesn't say that an unworthy person might take the Lord's Supper. He talks about taking it in an unworthy manner, takes it unworthily. See, it would be unchristian for Paul to say something about an unworthy person. Because the good news of the Christian message is that each of us is unworthy. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us fall short of his glorious standards. And all of us deserve to die for our rebellion. But God, in his goodness, sent his son Jesus to die that death for us so that all who come to him in faith and repentance might live eternally, not on the basis of anything they have done, but on the basis of everything he has done. We are all unworthy. Or to put it another way and more acutely, if you think that you are worthy of the Lord's Supper, then you are the last person who should take the Lord's Supper. Because what it means to be a Christian is to be a person who recognizes his absolute unworthiness before a holy God and leans wholly on the grace offered by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of his sins. Christians are people who know they are sick and know the remedy for getting better. No, instead, Paul writes about an unworthy manner. What is that? It's eating the supper without discerning the body. Great, thanks, Paul. What does that mean? Well, it's an awkward phrase, but I think he's referring to exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They thought they were eating the Lord's Supper, but they weren't because what they did was being done in an exclusionary way. They were taking it as individuals, or at least as groups of VIPs on one hand and commoners on the other hand. They weren't, because of their segregation, they weren't properly reflecting the idea that they were one. They didn't recognize that they were one body. They didn't discern the body. So much of what we have made the Lord's Supper in American churches, including I hear at Gateway, is actually in violation of what Paul is talking about. We have made it an individual event. Things that we think of as holy can actually be destructive. Let me give you a few examples of some common practices, some that I've seen here, some that I've seen elsewhere. One common practice that we have, we often have a time of private reflection in our churches where we can confess our sins to God and pray as individuals. I mentioned that before. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this. It's good to have confession of sin. 
But notice it's not commanded in Scripture. And it could have a tendency to draw us away from the community for a moment and into our own little personal bubbles. I think maybe a better practice would be on those Sundays in which we know our church is going to practice the Lord's Supper. It's a good reminder of what Christ did for us and our need before him. And it's a good practice in your home before you come to confess those sins that you know are outstanding. But once we come, let's be one, lest we unnecessarily begin to think of ourselves as individuals. I've known, in fact, many faithful Christians who do not take the Lord's Supper because they feel guilty about something and didn't judge themselves worthy of the meal. And I've been tempted to do the same thing at times. But let me remind you, let me remind you that that is utter foolishness. Brothers and sisters, we are not called into a church because we are righteous and worthy. We are called into a church because we are unrighteous and unworthy. We need a Savior. If you avoid the Lord's Supper because you are unworthy, then you do not understand grace. Grace means you are unworthy, and God has accepted you anyway. Another common practice in our tendency at Gateway is to tell people to come forward when they are ready. Notice the individualistic bent there, when you are ready. And then each consumes the meal on his or her own. I don't think this blatantly crosses the line, but in emphasis, again, it might encourage people to think wrongly about the meal, to think about it as an individual coming to Jesus instead of a body coming to Jesus. Now let me really step on some toes for a second, because there's been a practice in recent years at some weddings for the bride and groom to take the Lord's Supper as part of the ceremony as sort of one of the first acts they take together as a husband and wife. I understand the sentiment that the husband and wife, the bride and the groom, they want to do something overtly religious and make their wedding a spiritual event. They might even want the non-believers who were there to see their profession of faith through taking the Lord's Supper. But I'm sorry, that's clearly not what the Lord's Supper is for. In fact, there are few acts in modern life that I can think of that come closer to what the Corinthians were doing than that. Two VIPs, the bride and groom, receive the bread and the cup while the rest of their Christian brothers and sisters watch them. That is not the Lord's meal, but two people having their own meal. Don't do that. Now, if you've already done that, there is grace for you. We are all unworthy. I don't say that to humiliate you or embarrass you, but let's think about the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, these are just a few ways that someone might take the Lord's Supper unworthily, that is, in an unworthy manner. So let's flip that around. How do we take it in a worthy manner? Well, here we have this positive command to examine oneself. I, I don't think, as I said before, that Paul is suggesting we test to see if we are worthy. That's not the question, and it's not really about checking our hearts for sin. I don't think that's it either. 
The word means to prove something out by testing or to determine someone's or something's genuineness. In fact, it's connected to that idea in verse 19 about the genuine ones among the Corinthians, the true believers. So what I think Paul is saying here is that when we take this meal together as a sign that we are one body, we do well to consider that body, the church, and reflect on our connection to it. Are you truly a member of Christ's church? Has he rescued you from a path of destruction? Has he brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Has he taken you who were not a people and made you his people, a part of his church? And maybe more acutely still, have you been living your life in a way that reflects the unity of Christ's body? Are you recognizing your oneness with those people sitting to your left and to your right and across the way and in an aisle and a row behind you? Or have you been living your life in a way that is independent and separate and exclusionary and segregated of Christ's body? I think that's a bit more what Paul is getting at. If the Corinthians had done that, they might have immediately moved from the VIP lounge to the general seating area. Practically, at the very least, this means that when we take the Lord's Supper, we ought to be reflecting on our Christian unity as a church. That's why sometimes churches will call this meal communion, which is a coming together. It's a good word. There's a mystery in this, though, isn't there? We are strange bedfellows, drawn from different walks of life, different states, different nations, different complexions, different histories, different economics, different social settings. But all of us are brought into one new thing, made alive in the blood of Jesus. Whatever advantages we were born into or acquired along the way are cast off as if nothing at the foot of the cross. We enter into a new kingdom as equals. There's no hierarchy among us, no lords and peasants, no ladies and servants, no aristocrats, no oligarchs, just Jesus who bought us. As Jesus himself said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. As we celebrate his supper, let us understand it as a memorial to the God who became man and who died in the place of his creation to bring us many sinners in as his sons. As Peter wrote, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, these aren't just mere suggestions, as Paul's next words clearly indicate. When he says that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, there's a real warning there that when we exist as a divided, fractured community and so despise Christ's body, despise the church, 
despise what Christ has wrought by his blood, that there is a real danger of judgment from God. Paul writes, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we were thinking clearly and judging our motives appropriately so that we don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that we don't segregate ourselves and exclude others or, or, or take it individualistically, we can prevent Christ's judgment. But there's a, there's a caution, in there's, or not a caution as much as a hope, an encouragement. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, I said it's a hope. Here's the interesting thing. There's a, there's a judgment of Christ on Christians that's different than the judgment that comes at the end of the world. There's a judgment by Christ on Christians that is designed for disciplining us and bringing us into righteousness and holiness. It's for our own good. So although this is a threat and this is a warning to the Corinthians and to us, and it's definitely not something we want to step into, at the same time, there's a reminder here that this isn't entirely punitive, but it is for the Corinthians' good. It's for our good. In fact, it very well may be that Christ takes a life in order to preserve that soul from rebelling so hard against him that it abandons the faith. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That God might be so concerned that you are on a trajectory that leads you to denying Christ that he snuffs you out to see your Savior's face so that it doesn't happen. That is how good our God is. On a less serious note, illness and weakness are reminders of the sin that exists in this world and sometimes of our own personal and community sins. But there are always opportunities to remember the fact that the world is not the way it ought to be that we are sinners in need of grace, and that we probably have something to repent of. I know that in an age that eschews superstition, at least claims to eschew superstition, we like to throw out verses like this, but we have to accept the reality that as Christians, God's judgment can come upon our church and injure us if we don't reflect the love of Jesus in the unity of our membership. Instead, as sort of a summary command, Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Which it might literally mean that some of them are eating before the others get there. The idea also might be that they are enjoying the best of the meal right in front of the Christians who don't have as much. 
but the idea is basically the same. They're not discerning the body. They're not consuming the Lord's Supper with the unity that makes it the Lord's Supper. And so it's not the Lord's Supper at all, but an individual meal. And that should not characterize us. So let us no longer eat the Lord's Supper as individuals having a private audience with the king. No, let us celebrate as the king's subjects, seated side by side around his great banqueting table. Let us take it not as a daddy-daughter date, but as a joyous, raucous family reunion. Let us recognize the body which we are, if we belong to him. And let us eat it with glasses held high in salute to the king of kings, whose salvation brings, who was and who is and who is to come.